Hi, and welcome to ONS Energy Talks. My name is Inger Johanna Stenberg, and I work with communications at ONS, one of the world's leading energy meeting places. I am really happy to be able to share some of the highlights from the ONS conference with you. And in this episode, we're diving into the big questions of coexistence in the energy market. At the ONS conference in Stavanger, Norway, this August, we were happy to welcome Dr. Amrita Sen, the founder and director of research at Energy Aspects, Halima Croft, the managing director and global head for commodity strategy at RBC Capital Markets, and Dr. Xavier Chen, the founder and president of the Beijing Energy Club. Together, they explore energy security and transitioning towards net zero. How will very different industries develop and coexist in different markets? How can they share synergies in infrastructure, competence and consumer knowledge? Dr. Sen is leading the conversation where they will talk more about the global perspective of coexistence. Um, but I did want to really widen the conversation out because, you know, we should re- look at coexistence and the energy challenges we have from a global perspective. Um, so, Dr. Chen, um, you know, you've, I was almost going to say you've flown in from Beijing because I think that, you know, has a, a, a gravitas. But yeah, again, I know you haven't been able to go back home um, for some time, but you've heard from um, a, a European prime minister, very European perspective, and rightly so. Europe's in the greatest crisis amongst any other country right now. But give us the Asia perspective, because I think it's so important for, a, for an audience like this to hear from you, to hear what's going on in Asia and how does Asia feel about whether it's the energy challenge in Europe and just generally energy security, what does it mean for Asia? You know, I worked in the IEA for eight years, during a long time ago. During my time, we would talk about three E's, energy security, environmental sustainability and economic development. But after Fukushima, there was an underlying factor added, it's called safety of energy infrastructure. But this time, with energy crisis, there is a change of these three elements, energy security and climate change, or environmental sustainability, is no more a balancing relationship. Energy security is a precondition for climate sustainability. So this is a much more pragmatic approach in China. The Chinese perspective about the carbon issue is actually carbon is a delicious, is a treasury. We live in a carbon-built world. Everything here are made of carbon, clothes is carbon, capital is carbon. So there is no zero carbon world we reinvented the new term, it's called the zero emission economy or low emission economy because the issue is really is about emission. And then also the approach to decarbonization, security of supply is a precondition, not only about energy, but also about food, about supply chain, about uh, you know, everything that is needed to make this world working. So there is a, a kind of operational research problem that there is an objective function which is to minimize the carbon emissions, but then subject to a set of constraints, boundary conditions. Energy security is one 
food security is another one, supply chain security is another one, financial security and social justice, so on. Operational research with uh, multiple boundary conditions. So this is uh, how we see energy security and uh, uh, climate change. And I think this is much more pragmatic than the dogmatic one. You know, pragmatic also in the sense that the, the Chinese say, let's build the new house first before you pull down the old house. And what we see in Europe, maybe there is a tendency you pull down your old house too early before you build the new house. And that's why, you know, in China, we not only consolidate our current supply basis to ensure that energy is there, energy security, but accelerate renewable energy development, accelerate energy storage, you know, pumped hydro, petrochemicals, uh, and also uh, uh, electrochemicals, you know. All these kind of things are all together to make this happen step by step. So I think, uh, you know, 2050, still we have almost 30 years. We are just at the beginning. So we have time to learn from past uh, efforts, lessons, and then define a much more pragmatic way forward. But if I can just stick with you, because China's going through probably some of the worst droughts right now, and you recently wrote a paper which is, again, so relevant for Europe, if you are going to be so reliant on renewables, the problem is the more climate change there is, the more renewables then also become unreliable. And so far, we don't have the technology in the battery space, or whichever storage you want to say, to be able to store enough when it is working so that we can use it when it's not working, which, by, by the way, means that for, because of the intermittency, we have to have fossil fuels as baseload. And we are seeing this in the U.S. as well, by the way. Yeah. Uh, and I think China, with the droughts right now, is probably really putting that issue in front of the global map. And I think that's probably the most pertinent thing for Europe to really understand in this debate about renewables, the intermittency issue and that baseload issue with fossil fuels. So, you know, what do you have to say about that? You know, you had an excellent slide. It shows over 40 years of transition, fossil fuel reduced by from 90% to 84%. So fossil fuels is essential for the running of this earth, for our lives. If you eat one French bucket, you need two spoons of diesel. If you eat one kilograms of sea bass, you need the two liters of diesel. You know, everything is about energy. Steel, cement, you know, plastics and ammonia, all fossil fuels. And then we say, okay, let's develop all these wind, solar resources. These are electricity, right? Particularly, we mentioned about electrons. And, but they are also, also mentioned about molecules. The world needs more molecules than electrons now. Electrons are difficult to store. Yeah? So all the renewables we talk about is actually electrons. And the renewables by nature, not only intermittent, but also heavily influenced by climate change. You know, last year, there was a flooding in July. We have so much worries that Shanghai will be flooded because the three 
gorgeous dam may collapse everybody so much wallet. The three gorgeous dam lowers the level forever. You know, Sichuan province, the hydropower producer, only runs 50% of its capacity. And then, because it was exporting to Shanghai, to other uh, uh, provinces, so you do not have electricity supply, and then what they do? They go back to coal, you know, to gas, even to oil, you say, you know, diesel. So what happens is actually we have to add a risk factor to all the renewables, hydro, wind. There is a tendency of windmill migration because of climate change. 2017, there was a University of Denver you know, study saying that actually global wind might migrate from the north to the south. I would like to draw our innovation colleagues' attention to study that. If we build massive scale of windmill in North Sea, can we be sure that 20 years later, the same amount of wind resources will be still there? You know? So the lessons we learned is actually renewables is good, but renewables may not be always there. But electricity demand is there. EVs and the digital infrastructures and all the electrification of manufacturing processes. So we have to meet electricity demand constantly, 24 hours, without interruption. And then what we do? The more you develop renewables, the more you will have to build reserve power. The best reserve power is actually, I'm sorry, fossil fuel. So fossil fuel will be from today's base load into peaking power in the future. So Helima, I'm sure, again, you know, the countries we live in, yes. this is a completely different view out there. I mean, I think this is an interesting, because I, I think you wanted me to sort of to give the U.S. perspective, and I think that when you think about U.S. energy security, I actually started my career at the CIA after 9-11, and the whole emphasis after 9-11 was security of supply through diversity of suppliers. So don't be too dependent on one region. We were focused on getting as much oil as we can from places like Nigeria, the stands, you know, Brazil. That was the whole, the whole theme. And then we ended up with, with the shale revolution, which really sort of changed, I think, you know, not only how we thought about energy policy, but U.S. foreign policy as well. There became, I would argue, an erroneous notion when we talked about American energy independence that we could somehow sort of almost sometimes wall ourselves off from the rest of the world, that we had the resource in the United States. We didn't have to become involved in certain parts of the world. We saw it in places like Iraq. We got pulled back in, irrespective of shale development. But we really saw this, I would say, interesting enough play out in the Trump administration when we go to coexistence. Because what was so interesting, and I actually wrote about this, was no matter how much we talked about American energy dominance, which would allow us to like punish our foreign policy adversaries with sanctions while shielding our consumers from the price impact of that, when prices got too high, sometimes because of US foreign policy, when we exited the Iranian JCPOA nuclear agreement, we made the phone call to Riyadh. When we had you know, prices collapse in 2020, which we were all didn't get any sleep from March onwards, you know, what was the big emphasis of the Trump administration? It was to get Saudi Arabia and Russia back together mm. to put in a floor for prices to essentially 
help save the U.S. shale industry. So I think there was always this mutual dependence that we sort of sometimes didn't want to acknowledge because it didn't fit our rhetoric about our own position in the world. And I think we've come to this sort of really very interesting inflection point now with this war because I think the initial way we thought about sanctions from the early days, mm -hmm. you know, in March was we can put a lot of pain on Russia. We think about it, the first time we sanctioned a G20 central bank. We disconnected, you know, really important Russian financial institutions, you know, VTB from the SWIFT payment system. But we said we can shield ourselves from the impact of that because we are going to ring fence energy and essentially keep, try to keep Russian oil flowing, sanctioning everything else, and essentially pushing the pain back onto Russia and not having it be reflected back at home. And we're really seeing now that that was never going to be easy. And so as we head to this you know, situation coming on December 5th, I'm, I'm focused more on oil, you know, what happens with the EU sanctions, I think we are kind of coming to a really interesting inflection point. I mean, particularly Europe focuses on gas, obviously. The United States is focused on oil in terms of oil prices. It's singularly important for US yeah. consumers. But also Russia is very focused on oil proceeds. That is what earns them their foreign exchange. Absolutely. So if you're Russia and you're heading into this sort of December 5th sanctions date when we will have the seaborne embargo, Germany and Poland cutting off pipeline imports, also the really important shipping and insurance sanctions, I think it'll be a really interesting test of will whether Europe goes forward. And I think market participants, particularly on oil, just believe that the pain is going to be so high that Russia will play the gas card and force Europe to give in on the oil card. And I think that's going to be a really important inflection point. And I certainly think with the U.S. efforts on price caps to try to find a mechanism to allow Russian crude to move to Asia at a you know, set discounted price, reflects the, the concern, you know, particularly in the United States, maybe not as much in Europe, but on oil in the United States, about what happens if we were to lose several million barrels of Russian oil. But this is, again, it becomes the whole point of partnership that was laid out in the, you know, the first talk, is that in order to get price caps to work, it's going to require significant partnership, not only with the Europeans, but with China, with India, to make this work. And there is still the, the question that troubles me and keeps me up at night is we've heard a lot about, well, we can get to spring and that we can use this crisis as a catalyst. Are we sure we've definitely seen the worst from the Russians? Are we sure that this is it in terms of how they make us pay a price mm -hmm. for supporting Ukraine? So I do think we have to pull together get through it, but I still fear that worse could be coming. Because for the Russians, this is such, they are all in on this war. And I think you, you highlight exactly the issue in some ways, because Europe is so focused on gas. Right. In some ways, the rest of the world, oil is a bigger driver, be it GDP, be it geopolitics. And what's interesting in this is that while the US wants partnerships at the same time, it is. I mean, there was a letter sent out last week potentially limiting diesel exports and gasoline exports. It may not happen. Right. There's also some talk, maybe we even see LNG exports being yeah. curtailed given uh, the prices. And again, in the interest of time, I think this is, good, this is the last topic I want to ask both of you about. 
U.S. China, right? Because yes. we've seen we've yes. seen uh, both do this. China before again the latest wave of COVID had also come out and said we're going to not allow much product exports because we need to keep it domestically. And you've seen this crisis, despite all of us talking about cooperation, is also making us more inward-looking. Yes. Us first then we'll help you. So how do you marry that? And, you know, Dr. Chen, you and I have spoken about this trust. The biggest issue for US-China right now is the lack of trust. So how does both, like, in some ways, resource nationalism and the trust play out, particularly for these two economic giants? I congratulate ONS and you to bring US and China together. (laughs) (laughs) Because they did not talk anymore. yes. (laughs) Yes, no. In China, when we were kids, we were told a story 2,200 years ago. It's about the ex-dealer, you know. So uh, the story goes that a farmer lost an axe. She suspected that his neighbor's son stole it. And then he looked at his neighbor's son. Every behavior of his son looks exactly like an ex-dealer. Yeah. But until actually one day he found the, the axe in his own garden, he looked at his son again. Oh, it's a nice trap. No more uh, axe stealer. So this is now what's happening between China and the US. Each side, in particular, I would say the US found the China axe stealer, <laughs> blame China, incriminate China. Demonize China, and the Chinese are so poor in communication, actually. Mm. So I believe these two superpowers, when they do not trust each other, is a disaster mm. for the entire world, yeah. for this part of the world. You know, you talk about, the, say, Ukraine and the Russia uh, war and the European sanction, Russian gas imports. Mm. What this happens is actually this lead to the Chinese relying more on Australian coal consumption because the entire system is systematic. So I use perhaps an easy example to understand. A village is supplied with utility tap water. So one villager decided not to get the tap water anymore. Instead, go to a bottled water to meet his needs. So this drives up the bottled water price. The Chinese, you know, they use tap water, but they also use the bottled water, and they have storage in the bottled water. They sell to the villager, say, please take my bottled water because price is so high. And I do not buy the bottled water from the market anymore. I go to fetch the water in the river, which is not as clean as bottled water. So this is not happening. You can never, in terms of price competitiveness, bottled water and tapped water. So the Chinese are actually selling the LNG long-term contract to Europeans. Mm. Please take it. I go back to coal. Yeah. So that's what's happening now. Yeah. And I would say that the European friends wake up. If you want energy independence, China can help you. China is not only the biggest emitter today, it's also the biggest innovator. Mm. Solar, wind, batteries, EVs. I can see BYD and all the Chinese EVs are so popular, despite what Elon Musk talked about, the Tesla. 
Actually, BYD beat it last year. Uh, Tesla. So, uh, the critical joint, uh, joint uh, moment in history, EU-China cooperation will be great to reinforce European energy security and while addressing climate change. Mm -hmm. And I do hope that through our joint efforts, you know, US and China can resume conversation joint hand-to-hand for both global energy security and climate neutrality. So in the interest of time, Halima, quickly, what do you, you know, obviously there's US-China US relations probably at some of the lowest yes. it's, it's ever been. There's Taiwan issue, which we don't need to go into, but, you know, how, how do you see? What worries me the most is that when you think about the early days of the Biden administration, and someone like Secretary Kerry would say that there can be all these issues in the US-China relationship, you know, South China Seas, Taiwan, but he had a good very good partnership. He would talk about this publicly with his Chinese counterpart on climate. To me, this is a, a terrible tragedy that that has broken down because, again, so much of the, the talk in the first session, which I thought was so prescient, was like, we've got this if we're together. I don't know how we've got this on climate if we're not together working with China on this issue. And my biggest concern, it came out of our dinner last night, was the sort of fog of war, the unintended escalation through miscalculation, that we may not see our actions the way the other side does, and we have a misinterpretation. I think about this in terms of the Pelosi visit to Taiwan, how you were saying that absolutely we thought this was sanctioned by the Biden administration, and someone else at the table said, how could you possibly think that? You know about the American political system, that the president could not stop her from going. And so that kind of confusion, you talk about the Thucydides trap, how Chinese officials see things through that paradigm. I worry about that sort of miscommunication because you don't have an active dialogue. And I think there's a lot to take away from there because, again, coexistence requires China and the U.S. to not just talk but probably be friends or at least cooperate on some very, very important issues. Thank you both, Halima and Dr. Chen. Thank, Thank you so much. much. Thank, Thank you. Thank you. You just heard Dr. Amrita Sen, Halima Croft, and Dr. Xavier Chen at the ONS conference Monday, 29th of August, 2022. Stay tuned and subscribe to ONS Energy Talks, where you find your podcasts to hear more highlights from ONS in the months to come. <laughs>